Welcome to episode 25 of the Emergency Physician Advocates, Legal and Policy Issues in Emergency Medicine, the Policy Prescriptions Edition, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Cedric Dark, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emergency Medicine Residency Program of Baylor College, speaks with three special guests about policy trends you can expect to see in 2016. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Emergency Physician Advocates Legal and Policy Issues in Emergency Medicine podcast. This is the Policy Prescriptions Edition. My name is Cedric Dark, and I'm the founder and executive editor of Policy Prescriptions and also an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. With me today, I have three guests, uh, Dr. Jesse Pines, Dr. Megan Rainey, and Dr. Seth Truger, all of whom are emergency physicians but have various interests in public health and health policy and are going to help us tackle several issues um, that are going to be prominent themes throughout the year 2016. Let me introduce all of them separately, and then we'll jump into questions after that. Um, Jesse Pines is the Director of the Office of Clinical Practice Innovation and a Professor of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University School of Medicine, also a Professor of Health Policy and Management at the GW Milken Institute School of Public Health. Dr. Megan Rennie is a practicing emergency physician and researcher focusing on the intersection between digital health and injury prevention. She's also the director and founder of the Brown Emergency Digital Health Innovation Program. And Dr. Seth Truger is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Section of Emergency Medicine, assistant social media editor for Annals of Emergency Medicine, and the social media personality that many of you on Twitter know as MD Aware. All right, um, let's start the first question with Jesse. I wanted to get into what's probably going to be a very prominent theme throughout the next year and, and maybe in the years to come, which is value in healthcare, which typically has been defined as quality over cost. And what I wanted to know from you and from the other guests that we have is how well do you think the transparency movement for both cost and quality are moving through the field of emergency medicine? Uh, sure. Well, I can talk specifically about transparency. You know, currently the way things are, there's very little transparency with respect to the patient who uh, is the purchaser of healthcare and also the you know the provider. So there's basically very little uh, information, transparent information that either of us have uh, on what the the patient might pay and what the the cost of the tests and, and treatments that the doctors are providing. So, uh, you know, I think that what, one of the necessary steps in value is really understanding what patients actually pay for things and, and, and the uh, what are the costs of the treatments that we're recommending. And there, there's really very little of that right now. So as transparency becomes greater in the future, hopefully, where there's more information on, on what things cost and, and what things cost patients, I think that will uh, let us practice more value-based care because really, you know, what needs to happen is those prices need to be transparent and real-time so that physicians and patients can work together and, and make an informed decision about, about a particular uh, treatment in terms of its expected uh, benefits, costs, and, and potential adverse effects in, in the context of its costs. You know, now, now we're 
practicing totally in the dark. In the future, hopefully, this new movement will, will shed some light on this area so we can start considering costs when we make uh, treatment decisions. It's one of the the issues that I have with the sort of the, the movement of transparency. And I'm actually I'm looking at an article from Modern Healthcare on their website. And to quote them, they say, in a medical emergency situation, for instance, patients aren't going to begin price shopping while waiting for an ambulance. And sometimes what seems like a minor ailment can turn out to be something more serious and more expensive, making it difficult for patients to compare prices ahead of time. So especially for the field of emergency medicine, how does that play into this whole cost transparency movement? Well, I still think that for uh, for many conditions, enough time for people to shop around uh, and, and decide, for example, if you've got a, a laceration, you know, where you may not to be, you know, you don't have a head injury, you don't need to be seen right away that where you could shop around to, to try to get a sense of the various places and, and what and what things might cost, or you've had a you know, you've got a, a bad cold and you think you may need a chest x-ray, you, you may have enough time. Certainly for conditions where people re- require immediate treatment and, you know, are, are critically ill, there's going to be very little information about price and price, you know, will probably not play a, a big role there. But for, for, me, for many conditions, uh, th- there's probably enough time to do some shopping if the data were actually available to people. So one of the other things I wanted to talk about um, is some of these new quality incentives that came about following the SGR repeal last year and last spring. And, and what do you know about MIPS? What can you tell just the sort of the common emergency medicine provider what they need to know about it? I think that quality measurement in the future is going to be more important, especially through the new development uh, of ASEP's uh, Clinical Emergency Data Registry, or CEDAR. Emergency physicians are going to have more control over the data that, that pertain to us um, and, and, what, and what quality measures are out there. And, and I think that there'll, there'll be only more quality measures reported. I think another message is that the current quality measures that we have or the, the basket of quality measures that apply to emergency medicine is still relatively underdeveloped and for you know the average emergency physician you know this this is an area that you know still needs a lot of development um, there there are a number of opportunities through ASAP to you know suggest new measures to participate in, in quality measure development that could you know that can really shape our specialty so I, I think we are you know even despite having tons of measures out there that impact medicine you know if you ask Don Berwick are there too many measures, there are too few measures. Don Berwick says that we have many too many measures. There are way too many measures out there. Uh, but uh, I think when it comes to emergency medicine, there are really too few that, that pertain to, to our practice. And, and we, we really need to participate in the, the development uh, of these new measures. And through, you know, through MIPS and MACRA and you know, the, these new mechanisms like CEDAR, we're going to have more opportunities to do that. Okay. So I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and see about getting into some some of the other issues that are sort of uh, epidemically going through society. Um, we've found ourselves having multiple mass shootings um, over the past several months, and recently have seen President Obama talk about some plans that he has for um, how we can can fix the the issue with um, gun violence in the United States. So I wanted to shift over to Megan now and see what she has to tell us as to what emergency physicians need to know regarding gun violence. 
one of the specific questions that I had for you um, kind of deals with evidence-based strategies that we can use or that maybe we could advocate for within our specialty societies. Um, there was a mention in one of the professional organizations about supporting universal background checks, and I was wondering um, what you might know about that or other techniques. Thanks so much, Cedric. So it's a great question. So obviously, emergency physicians have a big stake in the epidemic of firearm injury. As we all know, there are as many deaths from firearms each year as there are from motor vehicle crashes and from prescription opioids. And the majority of those deaths are suicide, right? About two-thirds suicide and one-third homicide. One of the problems that we have within the field is that most of the evidence that we have is observational. As you probably know, there's been an effective ban on firearm injury prevention research by the CDC since 1996. And there was an effective ban on research by the NIH for about a decade. As a result of that, our quality of research is not as high as it is for most other areas of public health and injury prevention. That said, um, there is some evidence behind some of the policy recommendations. Um, most of that evidence comes out of uh, a couple of groups. One is led by emergency physician Garen Wintemute out at UC Davis. And then there's a great group of researchers at Hopkins at their injury center. And then there are other kind of scattered researchers around the country who are doing some nice, as, as good as you can, um, policy research. You know, background checks are very strongly supported even among NRA members. People can kind of see that doing comprehensive background checks is not the same thing as saying that, they're gonna, that anyone is trying to get rid of the Second Amendment. Um, the idea behind background checks is the same idea as the idea behind licensing um, before you can drive a car. It's the idea that you have to show that you meet kind of minimum criteria. Um, and in many states, it involves getting a permit to purchase, um, which means that you have to show that you've have passed basic safety training. States that have those laws, that have stronger background check laws, and particularly states that have permit to purchase laws, have lower rates of homicide and suicide. And there's actually been some interesting kind of real-life experiments um, in a couple of states. So like in Missouri, they repealed a permit to purchase law in 2007. And that repeal of the stronger background check law resulted in about a 25% increase in firearm homicide and about a 16% increase in firearm suicide rates over the following five years, compared with stable rates in surrounding states and nationwide. So they did a nice little sad but decent experiment um, for us, which shows that, that some of that legislation is effective. Beyond that, it's difficult to say, again, because we, we just don't have great funding to, to do this sort of larger scale research that, that would be necessary. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was actually looking at an article on NPR where they, I think they're quoting that, exam, uh, that same study that you're talking about with the permits to purchase law. Um, we've mm -hmm. reviewed similar information on our website, policyrx.org, um, where we look at the health services literature and try to make it easy for clinicians to understand. And that's one of the few things that we've actually found is really reliable in terms of helping to reduce gun violence, whether it's homicide or suicide. Um, and I, I think that's another another misconception that might be going on out there is that people always thinking that it's homicides or assaults, but realistically, suicides are actually one of the larger um, issues when we think of gun violence. It's absolutely true. And there have been studies, not as much in the U.S., but in other countries showing that minimizing access to firearms at the time of a suicidal crisis 
decreases rates of suicides. So in particular in Israel, they restricted Israeli army members from bringing home their firearms and they saw a dramatic decrease in the number of suicide deaths. And the same thing has been seen with other types of suicide attempts, that if you restrict the means, you then decrease the number of deaths. I think there's a also a misconception that someone who wants to commit suicide is going to commit suicide regardless of the means. In actuality, if someone survives a suicide attempt, only about 10% of those people will go on to actually die from suicide. Um, 90% will not uh, make a future attempt and, and die from it. You know, I think we see a, sometimes a biased population in the emergency department, which makes us think that it doesn't matter what we do. These people are, folks are still going to try, when in reality, there's a lot we can do. Um, and helping to stop people from having access to lethal means at the moment of that high impulse and high suicidal drive can actually make a really big difference. So one of the, the issues that emergency physicians have in Florida now is mm. there's a law on the books that essentially could risk suspending your license or getting you disciplinary action from the Board of Medicine for talking to patients about gun ownership um, if it's not directly related to the treatment being given. And of course, you know, for pediatricians and other um, types of you know, internal medicine specialists, they may want to ask these things even when they're not necessarily seeing someone because of an injury. For emergency physicians, we probably would be okay for, for the most part under this, but I can't imagine that if you practiced in Florida that you would be too happy with that law. Yeah, Cedric, thanks for bringing that up, and kudos on the, kind of your nuanced interpretation. So that, that law in Florida, um, there have been a number of emergency physicians uh, down in Florida, and, and obviously pediatricians, who've been active in trying to uh, work against it. It's currently kind of stuck in, in the appeals courts. It is known as a gag law, but as you mentioned, it does specify that if you believe the information is relevant, then you can ask it. So, so the interpretation on the part of emergency medicine is, you know, if you're seeing a suicidal patient or you're seeing a psychotic patient or you're seeing a patient who has been the victim of domestic violence, those are all people who you can very easily argue um, that you have the utmost justification for asking about access to firearms on the part of themselves or partners or family members. To my knowledge, it has not been challenged. Uh, there have been challenges in court, but um, something like an emergency physician asking those types of questions has not been challenged, and I can't imagine that it would be. That said, there are other states that have proposed much more stringent laws, which forbid outright physicians from asking any questions about ownership or possession of firearms. This obviously has big implications from kind of the free speech perspective, but also from the patient provider relationship perspective. You know, we ask about drugs and smoking and sex and to be told that there's one thing that we can't ask about really gets in the way of that patient. Do, do you know which states those are? Yep. Uh, North Carolina and Ohio. They've both been proposed, but as of last that I heard, there's been no action taken. Okay. So docs in those places should probably keep their ears to the ground, I guess, so their state houses... <laughs> if, <laughs> so that they can make sure that they're able to continue to ask their patients important questions. All right. Um, do you have anything else on that, Megan? I would urge people, even in Florida, um, to not stop asking when it matters. Because, again, there's the law as written doesn't forbid you from asking those questions in cases of potential imminent harm. All right. Well, we move on to our last topic, Seth. 
wanted to ask you a couple of questions sort of pertaining to issues surrounding effects from the ACA, which there's a lot of reporting out there now about patients having high deductibles in their current health plans. And there's the issue of what it means for patients, but there's also the issue of what that might mean for the business of emergency medicine in terms of are we getting reimbursed adequately because, you know, Folks that are in high deductible plans, I guess, may you may have to go after them yourselves as opposed to getting reimbursement from the insurance company? Yeah, I think that's one of the unfortunate side effects of having more skin in the game for patients is that it's going to be a little more difficult and kind of make our optics for us look a little worse as we try to go after patients to get more money when the insurance companies are putting more of it on the patients. One of the one of the hard parts about the Affordable Care Act is that and just the whole concept of kind of trying to save health care dollars in general is that a lot of the things that save money overall and help us all out in general, these are things that are more difficult for the patient at, you know, when they're actually getting their care, things like higher out-of-pocket costs and high deductibles. A lot of things we're seeing like narrow network where insurance companies are keeping the premiums low by contracting with a smaller network of doctors and hospitals to try to negotiate tighter prices, which overall might be good in ensuring that patients can get affordable care when they need it. The problem is what this means for a lot of patients is that they're going to be paying more out of pocket, especially if they need to go out of network. One of the really unfortunate things for us as emergency physicians is that we're, we're seeing a lot of what used to happen behind the curtain with the negotiations between emergency physician groups and insurance companies becoming coming out in the open more, where we're seeing a lot of states like Texas um, and even New Jersey where insurance companies aren't really contracting with emergency physician groups. So now in order to recoup their costs, emergency physicians have to go after patients more for their for their side of the uh, bill, what's called balanced billing. And unfortunately, it kind of moves us from, you know, the, the white hat, uh, you know, nice George Clooney ER doctors into people who are coming after patients for their money just so we can keep our books balanced. And that's one of the issues. I, I've seen a ton of stories in the press about the balanced billing issue. Of course, when I see it and read about it, it's always the surprise medical bill. And I was just, what is your take on sort of that, that spin on it where it's, from our standpoint, either balance billing or fair billing, but from kind of the consumer standpoint, it's the surprise medical bill. How, right. do, you, well, how do you win that issue? <laughs> That's a really tough one. Um, and I, I, th- I think a lot of it is really going to be focusing on, on what's most important because we see some really scary numbers out there like you know high deductible plans with six to seven thousand dollar deductibles for patients who have bronze or silver plans what we need to remember though is that you know when there's some scary numbers like you know patients who have to pay something like six thousand dollars a year in premiums and then have a six thousand dollar deductible before they can get any of their care covered by the insurance company that deductible is usually right at the same level as the out-of-pocket maximum that the affordable care act caps so what that means is that you know, sure, the deductible might be high and the patients are paying $6,000 in premiums and $6,000 in deductibles, so $12,000 total for their care. But then after that, they're 100% insured and any care they get for the rest of the year is 100% covered. Um, compare that to patients who have employer-sponsored insurance. We hide the ball a lot with within, with premiums and employer-sponsored plans. And really, those plans cost about sixteen dollars to $17,000 for a typical plan. So a lot of this stuff looks worse because, you know, we're not we're only seeing part of employer sponsored premiums coming out of our plans. But a lot of this stuff is just really just bad optics because we're seeing you know behind the curtain more than we normally would or or did before the Affordable Care Act. Now, the other other thing that, that comes into play here, I guess, patients are now seeing these bills, as you said, and, 
you know, now some of this mystery is kind of disappearing. So does this play into what Jesse is talking about in terms of the price transparency movement? Is this something that's now um, exacerbating or are the, are the two factors sort of working together? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase from uh, Ezra Klein from his podcast, The Weeds, where they were talking about this. And, you know, we all want to bring overall healthcare spending down and we want to use market forces with things like skin in the game. So it's not all just government mandates to to decide who gets what and death panels and all those other sorts of bad things. But the way that looks, the way skin in the game looks is that patients are going to have to face tough decisions, are going to be paying more dollars when they see their doctors and they're going to be paying more. They're going to be paying that skin in the game at the point of service. And it's not going to be, you know, the, the halcyon days of you go to the doctor, you present your card and you never see a bill again. Jesse, I wonder what's your take on on this whole issue? I, I agree. I think that as this area evolves, that you know, there's going to be more light not only shed on bills, but but also shed on sort of how healthcare gets paid for. And I think that you know, right now, there's not only sort of poor transparency for costs when it comes to physicians and providers, but it's, you know, also poor transparency in terms of how the system works. And I think that having discussions like this and saying these are our healthcare dollars, this is how we're spending them, is this where we want the money to go? you know, what will allow us to have a lot, you know, more frank discussions about what, what's actually worth it and, and what's not worth it. And you know, like Seth said, sort of pulling back the, the curtain on, on medical costs will force a lot of these discussions to not only happen but in policy circles, but also happen at the bedside. And, and I think that w- where this will take us is to more focus on value and, and really trying to figure out what matters to the patient and, and what actually works and, and focus on delivering those services more and, and trying to avoid services that are unnecessary. I think one of the areas that we're headed that I think deserves uh, discussion is, you know, with all these new payment models and this focus on value is going to bring a lot more complexity to to payment and to how payment gets transferred between the provider or the insurer and the patient. It's going to bring tremendous complexity to that. And my hope is that we're currently in a period where the complexity is is increasing tremendously, but hopefully, as if we can get over the hump, once we get all the information out there and what what things cost, and really understand more about the value of medical care, we'll, we'll get more to a point where where things will hopefully be simpler in the future. A lot of what Seth was talking about. You ask the average patient how insurance works, and you see this list of insurance plans with covered services and deductibles. I mean, it's still it's still incredibly complicated. Um, you know, not only for for providers, but for patients. So my, my hope is that as you know, transformation evolves and we get to a, a point where we're focusing more on value, that you know, that point will also include something that's a little more simple for people to understand and, and apply in practice. All right. Well, thanks a lot for, for those comments. This is going to conclude our talk for today. I'd really like to thank our three guests, uh, Dr. Jesse Pines, Dr. Megan Rainey, and Dr. Seth Truger for joining us on the Emergency Physician Advocates Legal and Policy Issues and Emergency Medicine podcast. And um, we'll be back again with another Policy Prescriptions edition in the summertime. So thank you all very much. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Cedric. Thanks, Cedric. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, 
where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Find all episodes of the Emergency Physician Advocates and other podcast series on the AEM website underneath the Publications tab. Join us again next episode as Dr. Larry Weiss will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians. Thank you.